It's good to have you here for Wise Sex Thursday. It's a new, new day on the church liturgical calendar, Wise Sex Day. We, uh, we obviously live in a very sexualized culture. It's unbelievable the things that are on our TV. I, sometimes I sit there, and I hear that tune come on, you know, you know the Viagra uh, thing is coming on, and I'm sitting there looking at that advertising, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking back, you know, 40, 50 years ago, what would it be like to be sitting next to mom and dad watching TV, and, the, and that thing came on? I mean, our family would just have shut down. I mean... <laughs> The things that are explicit on TV now that we just never even thought about, you know, or, well, we thought about it. We didn't talk about it. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, and I just, I keep thinking about what, what would mom and dad have thought about this, you know, if they were sitting with me watching TV today. We uh, have a lot of information about sex. We, we seem to know everything there is to know about the human anatomy that has to do with sex. We seem to know everything that can be possibly known about every position ever dreamt up for sexual intercourse in graphic display. Uh, we have TV programs that rarely leave this out of the plot. And of the sexual relationships on TV, 90% of them are outside of marriage. And those that are within marriage are usually unhappy. So marital sex is portrayed very negatively, and extramarital sex is portrayed very positively on TV. And it's no wonder that two-thirds of our high school students, by the time they graduate, have had sexual intercourse, two-thirds of our students. Uh, it's not surprising, I suppose, that of those, one-half of them will end up with some sort of sexually transmitted disease by the time they're 25 years of age. So you have a third of our population, by the time they're 25, they're dealing with STDs because of the, the sexual activity. We have really shifted our whole mindset. We see things very sexually now, but not from a biblical sexual point of view, but from a very unbelieving, secularized, uh, almost animalistic uh, view of sex. It's kind of like the guy who went to the psychiatrist who was using the Rorschach ink block test, you know, where you just take an ink blot and push it together and open up the page and you just have this amorphous thing. And you're supposed to look at it and tell the psychiatrist what you see. And out of that, of course, he's going to be able to analyze, you know, how your brain works. Well, the psychiatrist said, well, let's just do this little test. So he had some Rorschach ink blots and he showed it to the man and he said, what do you see? And he said, sex. It's okay. So he got another ink blot. said, what do you see? He said, sex. He did about three, four times, and the guy kept saying, sex. And the doctor said, seems to me that you have an obsession with sex. And the client said, well, you're the one showing the dirty pictures. <laughs> and that's, that's the way we see it today. Everything is sexualized. It's dirty pictures everywhere. And you just assume somebody means something dirty by whatever they're doing. Well, what's interesting in the Proverbs, if you'll turn to chapter 5, we're going to look at about two and a half chapters today, chapter 5 and half of 6 and 7, because what's really interesting is that Solomon, in teaching his boys, was not going to leave this topic out. You know, you may think, well, what's wise sex? I hope it means good sex and a lot of it. 
You know, that's what we think of wise sex. But that's not what Solomon had to say to his boy. And that's not what the Bible says we should be learning and what we should be training the boys and the men in our lives. And what's interesting is if you talk to uh, college students who, have, who are living a faithfully biblical sex life, and you actually ask them about the influences in their life and what led them to that view and practice in their lives. 90% of the time, they will tell you that it was their parents who were the major influence on their sexual views and practice. 88% of high school kids will tell you that if you ask them, what would help you more than anything else to live a biblically God-pleasing sex life as a teenager. 88% of them will say, having an open, open conversation with my parents. Now, if you ask people in a room like this, how many of you who are parents have talked to your kids about sex? Studies show 84% of you will raise your hands. If I have your kids in this room, and I ask them the same question, how many of your parents have talked to you about sex? You know how many of them will raise their hands? 41%. <laughs> Something's missing here. You think you're having these conversations. You're not. Or at least maybe in your mind, maybe you had one with your father, you know, and it was so traumatic you thought you had it with your child, you know, or something. I don't know what. But there's, there's something really missing in the cultivation of this generation. They're not being trained. They're not being encouraged. As explicit as we are about anatomy and lovemaking, we're not being very explicit about the theology and the holiness of sexuality. So you notice Solomon didn't make that mistake. Now, <clears throat> Solomon made a lot of sexual mistakes. I don't know if we'll get into that. But at the end of his life, he abandoned his own teaching. It's unbelievable. He gets to be an old man and abandons the things he taught his own son. It's incredible. Watch yourself, old men. Don't be presumptuous. You may have had a successful life sexually. Don't be presumptuous. It's amazing to me how 70-year-olds can act like teenagers. I'm serious. They, they, uh, they get widowed, and then, then they think they should just marry anybody they want to for their own personal pleasure. They take they don't even take the Bible into account. It's amazing to me. They lived 70 years. Their mom and their daddy taught them, and here they are into their senior years not using their heads. You know, we, we say people don't use their heads, you know, and they get into old age, and they don't. That's what Solomon did. So don't be presumptuous. This is a continual battle to draw your last breath. There are about 40 million people that are using uh, Internet pornographic websites. This is a multi-billion dollar industry. I mean, we're up to 60, 70 billion dollars a year being poured into this industry, and you're being teased and drawn into it day after day, hour after hour. And studies show that about 70% of men in this country are using pornographic websites and 50% of church people. So I'm assuming half of us are using pornographic websites. This is a massive issue. And this has tremendous uh, effects on your mind, on your heart, on your relationships, and on your sex life. You think it's, 
It's non-destructive. It's non-invasive. It's impersonal. It's having tremendous effects upon you. And I, I see it as a pastoral counselor with people's sex lives that are falling apart because they're developing ideas about sexuality that are contrary to reality and contrary to the scriptures, and they're developing those ideas from somewhere. Their mother didn't teach them this. They're getting it from pornographic websites. And, and, and through that tease, you're being trained in a way that's absolutely the opposite of what sexuality was intended to do for you and to do for your wife and to do for the Lord. So we have an awful lot of work to do in order to become wise in our sexuality. Uh, every year I have the privilege of talking to our high school seniors, and we have a special little program for them. I mean, we, we start in our strategy with kids very early on. When they're in the sixth grade, let me back up for a moment. When they're in the sixth grade and they're getting ready to graduate from sixth grade, I go to their class and I tell them we've got a six-year strategy you know, to get them ready to be self-initiating, self-directing just in six years. That seems like an eternity to them, but I'm telling you, it's going to happen real fast. And we're going to send you out as missionaries to the college campus. And we, we're expecting you to really make a difference on those campuses. And we, can, we only got six years to do it, so let's get on with it. We talk about the purpose of youth group and the kinds of ways that we want to train them. Well, when they end up being seniors, I just had my first meeting this fall with this class. It's so much fun. I remember sitting there when they were little sixth graders. And here they are. They're 12th graders now. And we're talking about how uh, they're going to be faced with many challenges this next year. And we take one at a time. Uh, I have four meetings with them during the year. Of course, they're being taught by our, our staff all year long, more, far more than I teach. But this is just the, the privilege I have. And, of course, one of those talks is the sex talk, you know. That'll be sometime in February probably. Because the college campus, uh, our college worker, uh, our college minister, said that even in the, the six years since he's graduated, he says, or five years, he says, uh, it's just changed dramatically. He says, you're presented with sexual uh, temptation from the moment you set foot on the campus. He says, as soon as you step outside your dorm room, not your dorm, but your dorm room, you're presented with invitations and opportunities. Uh, he says, sometimes you can't even get outside your dorm room uh, before you're presented with them. Uh, it's just outrageous. So uh, anybody who goes to the college campus ought to be well prepared. And I tell our kids, I just say, look, if you're wondering, those of you who are believers and followers of Christ, if you're wondering how you can evangelize in college, let me tell you, it's really easy. Just follow the biblical sexual ethic, and you will be so weird that everyone will demand an explanation out of you. <laughs> why, why are you behaving like this? I'm serious. If you will follow a Christian sexual ethic in college, you will bring on all kinds of questions about your weird behavior. And you only have one answer, really. And that answer comes right straight from the Scriptures, as we'll see that there is a view that God has given us, and there's a passion that's in our heart, and there's a way in which we're living out a passionate life that leads to our sexual practice. And gentlemen, you need, you need to have that in your heart right now. Why are you living the way you're living? There needs to be a deep and profound theology and deep and profound piety and passion about your life that is directing the way that you're living. It certainly is directing the way everybody else is living. They have a passion they're living out, which is just simply no, nothing else than their own self-gratification, uh, the gratification of their flesh. Well, what's, what's your motive? What's your passion? Well, there's one that's not equal to that. There's one that's greater than that, as we'll see in the scriptures. So Solomon did not fail to teach his son about sex. And he taught it from 
uh, an ethical point of view, and he taught it from a theological point of view. That's what we want to do this morning. Let's look at chapter uh, 5, and we'll read through verse 14. And then we'll skip over and read some verses in 6, and then some in 7. Chapter 5. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked but she knows it not. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. Now go down to chapter 6, verse 20. That's the next page. My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life, keeping you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. And then look at chapter 7, just across the page, verses 1 through 5. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your kinsmen. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. All right. Let's begin with two warnings about sexual immorality. Two warnings about sexual immorality. First of all, you're going to need all the help you can get. It's a very powerful world out there. And everything is pulling you away from a gospel-centered ethic of how to live your life. Everything is pulling you away. Everything in the world, everything in your flesh, everything from the devil. They are conspiring, those three entities to pull you away from what is best for you. They're trying to destroy you. It's just that simple. There is a strategy to destroy you, and one of the ways to do it is through your sexual life. So you're just going to have to have all the help you can get. And there's help here, gentlemen. We're going to study the Word today. I hope that helps you. Uh, we have these small groups that we still invite you into. In fact, you've got these sheets on your table. If you'll sign up for those small groups, they'll help you in a lot of ways. Why? Because you talk about it with other men. And the more you talk about something like this, the more it helps you when you talk in the right company with other men who have an interest in helping you go in the right direction. 
We also have some people here who know a lot about this issue. We've got some people with a Christian Psychological Center here. And if, if you'd like to go intensively at this from a psychological perspective, and there are tremendous psychological dynamics involved in a person's sexual life. And if you've not examined those things, they, they're just jerking you around. Sometimes when you can label something, you get control over it. And one of the biggest helps of psychological therapy is that you begin to get some labels for things and you gain some understanding of some things, then you can go to, go to battle. But if you don't understand your enemy, and you can't predict your enemy, you can't label your enemy, you don't know who your enemy is. It's like terrorism. They're coming from everywhere. Where, there's no nation there. They're just everywhere. Al-Qaeda is just scattered everywhere. That's the way sexual immorality is. Unless you start to label them, you know where they are, and you've got targets and strategies, you can't fight this fight. So psychological insight can be very helpful. You can talk to, to Brent Stenberg or, or Ted Baltic is particularly a, uh, gifted in this area. Talk to Dr. Ted Baltic at uh, the Psych Center. Don Riley, uh, who is organizing these groups, uh, has experience in counseling men uh, who are having sexual uh, troubles, who are having a hard time sticking within the boundaries of a biblical ethic, and Don can help you. There are uh, strategies that you can take on, for example, with um, filters on your computers. If you have computers at home and you don't have filters on them, you're leaving loaded guns. It's like leaving loaded guns in your children's bedside table. You've got to have filters on those computers, and you, ha you really should have the ability to check the sites that your children are visiting. And you should let them know that. We'll be checking the computer to see what sites you're visiting and we'll be looking at this, have an open conversation about it. We all need to protect ourselves. Because most people who get hooked on pornography do so at about 11 years of age if they're boys, 12 years of age if they're girls. This all starts in junior high. Half of the junior high kids represented by parents and uncles in this room uh, have already visited websites, pornographic websites, half of them. And you have no strategy? That's crazy. And this is leading to the self-destruction of the home around uh, the world. So uh, get help. It's available. You have uh, uh, programs like Covenant Eyes, where whatever sites you visited on a regular basis are, are sent over to your partner, your accountability partner, who checks the sites you're visiting every day or every other day or every week. You can set things up like that where you're being smart. And so you need all the help you can get because the forces arrayed against us are incredible. They're very powerful. So first thing to realize, number one, this is a formidable enemy. Her lips drip with honey. So smooth with the tongue. She has seductive words. And they're called seductive because they actually do seduce men. She's effective. She seduces many, many men. And uh, it looks so good. And I'm telling you, guys, uh, you're unequally matched. She's very powerful. Don't mess with her. Uh, she's a very formidable enemy. Uh, when, you look, uh, when you look at some studies of television programs uh, and you find that almost all of the sexual life in a television, typical television program, almost all of it is extramarital, and uh, then you have these things like, with, you know, these programs that in some ways, you know, seem perfectly innocent. Of course, some of them don't seem innocent at all, you know, like Girls Next Door and Sex in the City. I mean, these are just flaunting uh, an anti-biblical view, flaunting it. 
and throwing it in your face. And now they're common TV shows, you know, broadcast during the family time. But then you have these more subtle ones like Friends. Well, of course, 50 years ago, that wasn't subtle at all. It would have been outrageous. Now it's subtle. And Phoebe, uh, you know, she wants, to, she wants to have sex with a guy, and she's really frustrated because she can't have sex. And then she comes to her friends and tells them, I finally figured it out. I promised him that we would have no commitment. And then she got, she got laid, as she put it. Uh, so you have this uh, kind of presentation coming at you constantly, and you don't realize how it's changing your mentality and making your view far more permissive. So that, for example, 60% uh, of the adults in this country now believe that it is morally acceptable to cohabitate outside of marriage. 60% of the population. Can you, those of you older guys, can you imagine that 50 years ago? It's, it's just unthinkable. But look what, it, look what friends and programs like that have done to our whole mentality over 50 years. Now, here's the amazing thing. If you go inside the church and ask the same question, oh, it goes from 60% way down to 50%. <laughs> half the church, half the church thinks it's morally acceptable to cohabitate outside of marriage. And I know some of you are saying, well, what is wrong with that? I mean, if half the church, I mean, we're, you know, we're the church plus some guys who are not in the church. So we're either in the 50% or the 60%. So I guess it is the task of wisdom to explain why it is not morally acceptable. And uh, let, me, let me take a little sidebar here just to describe what the Bible is really saying about sex. This is kind of off on the side here just for a moment. The word sex comes from the Latin word secare. S-E-C-A-R-E, S-E-C-A-R-E, sacare. That word means to cut off. You say, what is, what's the connection? Well, our sex is our being cut off from intimate relations with another person. In other words, it shows us that we are cut off and we are longing to be completed in a certain way. So that's where the whole word from, uh, of sex, that's where the word comes from. So what we're doing with sexual intercourse is we are completing ourselves in a certain way and, and uh, we are addressing the issue of being cut off. So that's what sex is all about. Now, when God made us, you notice in the Garden of Eden, He made us male and female. Thank you, God. I mean, it's wonderful and beautiful. And C.S. Lewis says, isn't it interesting that human beings are the only animals that have sexual intercourse face to face? It is really interesting that we face each other. We're not being cut off anymore. There's communion, there's union, there's intimacy through human sexuality. God made us for this. And if you look in the Song of Solomon, just a couple of books later here, he has this romance, this romantic poem that's very, very explicit and very passionate about how we should, how sexual love is a beautiful thing. So from the very beginning, it was given to us because we were made in His image. Now, why would we be sexual beings being made in His image? Because He too longs for communion with His creatures. He too, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have deep communion with one another. So He made us in His image so that we are relational beings, body and soul, just as God Himself is a relational being. And in the Godhead, they've been enjoying Trinitarian communion for eternity. And now that they made, He made us, He made us for communion with Himself. 
Now, what's interesting in the Bible is that in every culture, not just Israel's culture and the church's culture, but every culture, their sexual practice reveals and reflects their theology in every culture. Let me say that again. In every culture, every religious group, their sexual practice reveals and reflects their theology. That is, their sexual practice reflects what they think about God. Example, when the Israelites came into Canaan, of course, their sexual practice was very different from the Canaanites. Why? Well, the Canaanites had, you remember, Baal and Ashtoreth. And these were, you know, Baal, his, the god and his, his consort, uh, Ashtoreth. And they were basically fertility gods. You remember when Elijah confronted the, the priests of Baal, it was over rain. Baal was supposed to produce rain because he's a fertility god, and he wasn't doing very well. And when Elijah produced rain, it reflected the conquest of Jehovah over Baal. Baal is no god, and Jehovah is the one who controls the rain. That was the whole conflict. But notice in Canaan, their sexual practice. They had temple prostitutes, and those prostitutes would have sex with the worshipers who were working out what they believed about Baal, who was a fertility god, and who was whimsical and capricious. And you never know exactly what Baal's going to do. And so you, you go in and have capricious, whimsical sex with Baal's prostitutes, maybe Baal will get it going and will have a little fertility of the land. And that's, that view of sexuality, which was whimsical, unfaithful, multiple partners, reflected Baal's relationship to his people. It's whimsical. It's careless. It's not faithful. He's not committed to them. He's, he's completely unpredictable. Now, when Israel comes in, they destroy the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Why? Because Jehovah claims that as holy land. He's going to provide the rain and the crops. And He is faithful to His people. He makes covenant with His people. And therefore, when we exercise our sexual lives, our lives of connectivity to overcome our being cut off and only one gender, we do it in a way that is in covenant, that is faithful to the other partner. Because we are God's partners. He's made us covenant partners. Now that's the idea of biblical sexuality, that we're expressing God's relationship to his own people. That's the way he does it. He has intimacy with us through covenant, and he's always faithful to it. And he says, you copy me. Whatever I do, you do it. You just walk, you become like me. And people always become like their gods. What about Paul when he's traveling through Asia and Europe? preaching in one pagan city after another. What is pagan religion all about? Once again, you have multiple gods. You're trying to satisfy them. You look to them for power and influence, and you certainly look to them to give you favors. And what did the temples have in Paul's age? They had full of temple prostitutes. You go there now and look at the ruins, and some of them are very explicit, very sexual. You go in, you have unfaithful sex with whomever you want to, and you never know what's going to come out of it. That's the way that you relate to your God because he's completely unpredictable. He doesn't make any covenants whatsoever. He does whatever the heck he wants to. So their sex life reflected their theology. Paul says, no, our God is faithful to his people. Therefore, you will have one woman, one bride. You will not go off and have another bride. You have one bride. 
Just like I have one bride, and you be faithful to her just like I'm being faithful to you. So your sex life always reveals your theology, and it always reveals the piety of your heart and the passion of your heart and what you think about God's relationship with you. That's the reason it's so important that we get this straight. It is an act of worship. The Canaanites and the Greek gods, they had sex in the temple. So do we. And our faithfulness is part of our worship. That's the reason that if you look at the church today, you find its worship so weak. I mean, it's really just turned into a concert. It's turned into just satisfying your lust for entertainment. That's basically what's happened to worship in the church today, in my opinion. And you know what? It's perfectly consistent with our view of sex. It's there for our entertainment. We go to get what we want, just like we go to the supermarket and we get what we want. Everything's a commodity, and we're the customer, and we're the ones who are to be satisfied. So we're satisfied with our sex life. We're satisfied with our worship life because it's all entertaining to us. It's all about me. So that's the reason it's so important for us to understand how God made us and what this redemptive plan is all about. It's going to take wisdom to work our way through it because this world is not wise. It's foolish. And it's been very successful in, these, in this recent generation, my generation, and taking a whole generation of people and converting their mentality about God and then about their sex life into an opposite direction. So we see, first of all, this enemy is formidable. Secondly, you're going to need all the help you can get by realizing that you're given effective weapons. He says, when you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. What will speak to you? These instructions. Listen to His Word. In His Word, you're given what you need about Him and about how to walk with Him and about how to have a great sex life. You're given this, and they're very powerful weapons. The greatest of these weapons in the Word is the gospel. And you want a gospel-centered sex life. Let me tell you how that works. Number one, if our sexual sex life and our sexual activity is only to be exercised with a person of the opposite gender in marital covenant, everyone who has not sinned at all in that respect, please raise your hand. That's what I thought. So the first thing we're going to need is a solution for our having screwed up. And that's what the gospel gives you. And you and I cannot look at these instructions and hope that they'll change our lives one bit unless we know we're out from under the damnation that we deserve because of everything we've done. You're not going to get to step one unless you know you're forgiven. And I'm here to tell you it's the biggest joy of a preacher to be able to tell a group like this, you're forgiven for every one of your sexual sins, every one of them. Some of you are still feeling guilty for something you did at 16. Some of you are still feeling guilty for something you did before you got married. Some of you are still feeling guilty for something you've done while you're married. Some of you have not been married, but you've been sexually active. Some of you are struggling with thoughts, and some of you are struggling with pornography. Let me give you the good news. The gospel forgives you completely. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that's what he died for. That's the reason that death was so gruesome, because he was paying for sins like the ones that I have committed and you have committed. And God is just, and he doesn't require payment twice for the same sin. And if you believe that 
Christ was the Son of God and therefore had infinite sufficiency to pay not only for your sins, but mine too. And that's a lot. Then you can realize that God is going to be just. He's only going to require payment once. And Christ made the payment. It was an adequate payment for all of our sins. Therefore, you're forgiven. You say, well, won't that just lead to more sin? No. Not if you really understand what I'm saying. If you understand and believe what I'm saying, the last thing you want to do is to stab him in the back again. He loves you and you love him. That's the essence of the gospel relationship with God. You've fallen in love with him. It's a new love. It's a, it's a compelling power of a passion in your life. Even if you're not a Christian and you really love your wife, you treasure her, you admire her. She's so intelligent. She's so bright. She's so capable. She's so giving. Da, 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 da. You love her. The last thing you want to do is break her heart. I mean, you could hardly stand the thought of reporting to her that you've been unfaithful to her, to her, in all of her grandeur and beauty. Well, maybe you're saying, well, Wilson, I don't quite have a wife exactly like you just described. <laughs> yeah, but you have a husband if you're in Christ. And that's Christ. And he is lovely. He is brilliant. He is kind. He is good. He is truthful. And he is worthy of your faithfulness. So you see how we're moved and motivated by a deep passion. That's what moves us. This is not a passionless life. It's not the pagans who have the passion. No, it's the Christians who have the passion. And it's that passion that's driving us. Someone wants to know, Wilson, why do you live your sex life the way you do? I am in love, man. I'm fired up. Being celibate, you know, with everyone except my wife. I'm fired up about that. If you're a single person, you should be fired up about your celibacy. That's very sexy. You're being faithful to somebody. Sexually, you're being faithful to somebody that you love deeply and you'll die for him. That's the way you feel about it. It's, it's, very, it's almost militaristic in your passion. So don't let anybody else be more passionate than we are. So that's the idea of Christian sexuality in the gospel, that we're forgiven. That's the reason we love him. And then secondly, the bondage is broken. When Christ died for us, he broke the chains. You don't have to sin. You can now walk in righteousness. He gives you all you need for life and godliness. So if you're saying, how in the world am I going to do this? Well, hang in there. There's a way for you to do it. Even with your sexual dysfunctions, even with the lack of intimacy that you had with your own parents that drives you to want to get intimacy wherever you can get it, or even with you who are having a hard time communicating verbally and you have a hard time kicking your emotions in gear and having a healthy relationship and so you resort to sex. That's what's happening. It's, there's some reason in there. and Sometimes it's very deep and very compelling it feels and, and very, very pathological. There's an answer. Don't tell me the gospel can't handle this. Paul says the gospel is dynamite, it's powerful. Don't tell me the gospel can't solve your sex problems. I don't believe it. I know that it does. I've dealt with people who have deep sexual dysfunctions and have humbled themselves and cast themselves upon the mercy of the gospel and they found healing. So don't tell me it doesn't work. It works. What's not working is you. You're not believing and you're not submitting yourself in full repentance to the gospel program. And the gospel program includes the church. It includes the Bible. It includes transparency and repentance and humility. And when we put ourselves at the feet of Jesus Christ, He will take us and help us. And you can have help.
if you want it. So we're forgiven. And because of that, we're passionate about Him. And what He does, He sets us free from the bondage. And then thirdly, of course, in the gospel, He gives us guidelines. And that's what Solomon's talking about. Son, I'm going to give you some guidelines. Listen to me now. Heads up. Listen to me. Take these things to heart. Follow these guidelines. So in the forgiveness of the gospel and in the freedom of the gospel, now we can hear the commandments of the gospel. And it is good news. These commandments are good news because they, they lead you away from destruction and lead you toward life. Let me tell you something. Those who are having the best experience sexually in this country are married. They are. Listen, believe me, everything you can possibly know about sex has been surveyed in this country. So this is, this is empirical data I'm giving you. This is not ad hoc, uh, ad hominem observations. This is from data. People with the best sex lives are married. Of those who are married, the ones who are having the best sex lives are those who waited until they were married. That's, that's data. Surveys show that. I mean, that's just one example. We could go into the problems of depression and suicide and broken relationships, all of which are uh, related, directly related to sexual practice. There are many, many studies that show that the guidelines of the gospel are good news. They help you. They build you up, and they make you a better sexual being than the ways of the world. So it's a cheap, cheap counterfeit that is destructive you're given effective weapons in the scriptures thirdly you have to learn how to use your weapons and you just see a list there look at these commandments Solomon I mean at least by this time when Solomon was writing this he knew this was tough (laughs) he didn't know he was going to fail I suppose but he knew it was tough pay attention listen well keep your father's commands do not forsake your mother's teachings. Bind them, fasten them, store them, guard, write them on your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. <laughs> that means keep wisdom really close to you, the wisdom of God. And I would say the way you use your weapons, if I could just boil this down to three things, I would say acknowledge your weakness, first of all. Acknowledge your weakness. If you leave here and say, you know, sex is not really a problem for me. You're in trouble. Secondly, Go to God's Word and take it in. And thirdly, you've got to have accountability relationships with brothers. Do you have anybody asking you about your sex life? Who's asking from a moral point of view? Anybody who's asking you that? You guys who have been divorced or widowed, you're thinking about remarriage, are you humble enough to go to two or three brothers who are wise and say, guys, tell me honestly, before I get really entangled in this and get my emotions into it and build up expectations, honestly, what do you all think? Do you have the humility, the wisdom of humility to do that at your old age? Those of you who are younger, it just amazes me sometimes how you dash out and start building romantic relationships without any involvements. Some of you have wise parents and you don't involve them. It just amazes me. I'm talking about adult children who just amazed me at the lack of consultation with people who know them so well and they have godly parents and they don't use them. I'm just astonished. Or they have godly friends and they don't seek honest advice. Or if they get it, they don't take it. When you do that, you are not learning how to use your weapons. you got plenty of weapons, but you're just not pulling them out of the sheath. 
You got a, you got a loaded gun, you're just not willing to pull the trigger. So use what you have. So the first warning that Solomon gives is you're going to need all the help you can get. The second warning is this. You are flirting with disaster. Keep to a path far from her, he says in verse 7, or verse 8. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent, he says in verse 11. This is a disaster you're headed for. And it's a disaster that has to do with your physical life, your emotional life, your relational life, and gentlemen, your spiritual life. You're flirting with your relationship with God. If you flirt sexually with a woman other than your wife or you're single and you are looking at her in a way that is not loving and kind, you are actually being unfaithful to the Lord. What kind of what kind of relationship do you expect with him when you're doing that? You know how it makes us mad as a hornet when our partner, human partner, has been unfaithful. What do you think happens with your relationship with the Lord? Well, that's the reason Solomon is using this analogy for our spiritual relationship as well. He's saying avoid all kinds of adultery, beginning with adultery against God and then adultery against human partners. You're breaking a covenant. You're violating people. This only leads to disaster. So please guard yourselves very carefully. I just find that, that in our day and time, we do not guard ourselves. Men and women who are Christians take trips to Europe together unchaperoned. I don't understand that. I tell you what, if you, if you do that, you're a better man than I am. <laughs> I can't handle that. Going off with a woman in a romantic environment with no chaperoning, I'm not married to her, I'm, I'm not that good. And you're a fool for thinking you're that good. You're foolish. What do you think you're doing? The, all the boundaries of propriety have been dropped because 60% of the people think it makes no difference. So drop all the boundaries of propriety. Don't you drop the boundaries of propriety. I know young people, believers, men and women, who will travel together unchaperoned, not having sex, but they'll just sleep in the same motel room together to save money. I don't get that. <laughs> you're crazy resurrect the boundaries that used to be there. They were called decency and propriety and modesty. And they're there for a reason. Because you have these powerful sex organs beginning with your brain that is in your body. Respect those powerful weapons and respect the powerful allurements of sexuality that God gave us as gifts. Respect them. They're very powerful. They're like nuclear energy. They can be very, very good, but they can be very, very bad if you don't protect yourself from nuclear waste. Okay. Verses 15 through 23 in chapter 5, let's look at it. He's going to give us two solutions to sexual immorality. Two solutions. Let's look at these. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern. Stop right there. Cultivate love for your wife. Drink water from your own cistern. He says later on in that text, may her breasts satisfy you always. You say, well, my wife's breasts are just not that big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, let's talk about how to cultivate love for your wife. Uh, this is for you, those of you who are married, those of you who are single, we'll get to you in a minute. But the first thing about Christian sexuality is that the purpose of your sexual behavior is not to serve yourself. It's to serve her. 
This is a dramatic, radical idea. And most men don't get it. And here's why. You now get married at the age of 26. You used to get married at 21. Now you get married at the age of 26 on the average. You've had 26 years. Half of those, you've had your testosterone kicked in. And you've been thinking sexually. And two-thirds of you have been acting sexually. And there's no possible way that you were acting or thinking sexually with the advantage of the other person in view. All of your thoughts and all of your activity was selfish. So you were trained in the opposite way of thinking for 26 years. Now you get married, and you're having to switch that paradigm completely, and it was the paradigm you should have had in the first place. Because there's no way that you're having sex outside of marriage because you really want to bless that other person. Yeah, uh-huh. It would take the most perverted person to suggest that. You did it because you wanted it. You say, well, she wanted it too. Okay, so now here, here's what we have for your view of a beautiful sexual relationship. It's called mutual manipulation. I'll manipulate you and get what I want. And hey, if you can manipulate me and get what you want at the same time, hey, that's a good deal. That's as good as it gets with most Christian marriages. They're just simply mutually satisfying each other almost by accident. Christian sexuality is exactly the opposite. I take up the cross in every aspect of my life. And I follow Him. The cross is an instrument of death. I die to myself and I enter this relationship. And now, don't you love that verse in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul says, now, you married couples, you, you stay active and don't refrain except for a mutually agreed upon season of prayer and fasting. That's my life memory verse. I quote it to my wife frequently. Uh, <laughs> So most of us say, praise the Lord for His commandments, 1 Corinthians 7. But what you realize is you go into that regular duty as a duty. Of course it's pleasurable. But your first concern and your focus is her pleasure. It is meant to be a, a ministry. Hey, like this? It's a ministry of loving another person. That's the reason when you get married you study the female anatomy. That's the reason when you get married, you study ways of lovemaking that are conducive to her, the way she's built, her personality, the way she responds, her sexual response. You study her and you serve her. Of course, if this were a group of women, I'd be saying the same thing about serving your husband. But we're talking to men. So that's the reason if you're single, that's the reason you're celibate. You're serving her. This woman could end up being someone else's husband. Do you want to destroy your friendship with her? Well, then have sex with her and then let someone else marry her. And if you want to act like everything's normal and go into denial, that's your choice. But it is acting. It's weird. It's, it's fun to have Allison's old boyfriend come to visit us, which he did two or three years ago. Of course, our kids were giggling. That could have been my daddy. wish he had been my daddy. <laughs> the reason he was over for dinner was because he never touched Allison except in ways of courtesy and kindness. And he respected her future husband not even knowing who he would be. And so I have his respect. He certainly has mine. 
And it's fun to have him over. It's not awkward. It's fun. And so we're serving one another. When you're single, you serve people by keeping your pants on. And you don't go groping for people's body parts. How does that help anybody? Except satisfy some temporary lust you have. And then you have to, of course, try to turn your engines down to keep from sexual intercourse. And most of the time you don't. So why are you going to pet? You know, kids say, how far can you go? Wrong question. This, This is your sister in Christ. You're trying to build her up. So the first thing is cultivate love for the other person. And you'll find you'll have a tremendous sex life. And I always tell, I tell high school guys, would you like to have meaningful relationships with women and to have them be as intimate as they can be in the appropriate way? Yeah, sure, I'd like to have that. Okay, follow the biblical guidelines for sexuality and you'll have the best relationships with the opposite gender you can possibly have because you're showing them respect and love. That's the reason that actually you, you, you have... You're freer in some ways. I tell you, single guys, it's easier to develop really good relationships with women when you're married. And you express your bond with your wife regularly, and you know, verbally and non-verbally. Then you're free to relate freely to other women in an appropriate way. So cultivate love for your wife. Cultivate love for your date and for all women. You love them. You don't objectify them and make sex objects out of them. Secondly, practice the presence of God. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. Do you realize on this date God is with you? I mean, how many of you would act the same way on your date or with your wife if Billy Graham was in your living room? You might behave a little differently. Well, Billy Graham's a lousy sinner like you are. What about if Jesus is in your living room? Or what if Jesus is in your bedroom? You go, oops, pastor, I think you just went too far. That's because in your mind, for those 26 years before you got married, and most of you ever since then, you think of sex as something a little dirty. That's what makes it kind of racy and fun. That's not what makes it fun. It's holy, and it's wonderful, and it's beautiful, and God happens to like it. As a matter of fact, He likes the sexual union between you and your wife when you're cultivating love for her and serving her and honoring Him just as much as he likes your celibacy when you're single. You say, come on now, it can't be true. It is true. You'll find it in the Song of Solomon. You'll find it in Ephesians 5. He loves the intimacy of husband and wife who are really giving themselves to each other with an awareness of God's presence as the one who gave them the gift in the first place and uh, two people who are aware that they are symbolizing the relationship between Christ and the church even as they make love together and who are very aware of it. And they're very aware that this is just, just a taste of returning to the Garden of Eden where we are naked and unashamed. I don't know about you, but there's only one person I can be naked in front of and unashamed. And when I'm overweight, I'm a little ashamed in front of her. Uh, and you have a little taste of the Garden of Eden. One day we'll be living transparent lives and unashamed just like Adam and Eve, and you get that in in marital union. So for heaven's sakes, don't have sex non-theologically. Practice the presence of God. He is for you. He is with you. He takes delight in it. Pray and ask the Lord to make it great with your wife. Now, quickly, six things you need to know about sexual immorality. We'll not read the text. We'll just make the references. A, her weapons are powerful. Smooth tongue, beauty. She's beautiful. Her eyes are very attractive. 
And gentlemen, we are quickly aroused. We're built to be aroused quickly. And you cannot fight this person. <laughs> Her weapons are very powerful. She can seduce you. If you give yourselves to it, if you open yourself to it, if you let yourself be seduced, you will be. And it's very powerful. Secondly, her motives are selfish. In verse 26 of chapter 6, he says, she reduces you to a loaf of bread. You think you're getting the sex you want, she's getting the $250 she wants. And you're nothing more than food to her. Nothing. There's no intimacy there. It's, it's all a counterfeit. Thirdly, her husband is jealous. If it's not a prostitute, but an adultering, uh, adulterating woman, you know you're making him mad as a hornet. Jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. You're sinning against her and her husband. Just imagine having sex with her while her husband watches on with an axe in his hand. Fourthly, her methods are very powerful. She does it in the dark of night. Every corner she lurks. I can remember as a young man in Boston in business, and I went to a meeting uh, one night downtown in the Prudential Center, and I came out in the plaza, and there she was. She was so beautiful. She came up to me. I said, hello. And I was walking by, and she said, would you like to have some fun tonight? I said, yeah, that's where I'm going. I'm going home. <laughs> They're on every corner. She kissed him. She is even religious. Today I fulfilled my vows. Come in and help me fulfill my vows religiously. She has colored linens from Egypt. Oh, her bed is nicely spread. She's perfumed her bed. Oh, she smells good. Come, let's drink of love until morning. Oh, man, I'm good at it. I'll make you happy sexually. I know how to do it. You need a professional. You need someone who's really energetic about having sex with you. And after all, my husband is not at home. She's very powerful in her methods. Just think of it. You think you're in love with her. And she's being unfaithful to someone to whom she swore out vows. What makes you think she's going to be faithful to you? What makes you think she loves you? She doesn't love you. She wants your loaf of bread. She wants something about you. She doesn't want you. If she did, she'd be faithful to her vows in the first place. Her victims are many. Many are the victims she has brought down. You know, that poor little mouse that comes to get the cheese. All he wanted was just a bite of the cheese. Wham! Break his neck. And you want to say to that little mouse, you stupid little idiot. This is called a mouse trap. And you are a mouse, you idiot. Like those ducks. And you're sitting out there in your duck blind. I'm thinking, oh, come on, give me a break. You know? And you're sitting there and you perfect your duck call. You work on it for years. I'm thinking, you stupid idiot. You're a human being. You're not a duck. And here come these ducks. Kaboom! called a duck blind you idiot duck <laughs> these little fish they look up and they see a little fly on the water it has a big hook going through it but they see the little fly a whoop and then whoop and they come out of the water you're a fish don't eat things with hooks on them and barbs because you can't get off the hook that's what you are you idiot when she comes with her low-cut dress and swaying just in the right way and saying complimentary things that just build your male self-esteem. You're a mouse in a trap. Get the heck out of there. And here's how she'll reward you lastly with death. Her reward is death. Her house is a highway to the grave. Sometimes when I walk the beach, and I only do it once a day when I'm on study leave because I and I go late. 
Because <laughs> if you go in the middle of the day, I mean, there they are. They're just breasts everywhere. And what I do is I just say, I just say, Lord, give me the smell of death. Have you ever, have you ever smelled death? I mean, it smells bad. You know, you, you see people around it, they just have to cover themselves. It's so, so the stench is awful. Just get that stench in your nostrils. And now you got it. Taking you right down to, to death itself. Don't get trapped. Let's pray. Father, make us wise in every part of our lives to seek the glorious end of communion and spiritual intercourse with you and to choose the means that are most appropriate to it. Make us wise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.